Today's podcast is sponsored by Inner Professional Online Training Programs. With courses geared specifically for legendary leaders, Inner Professional provides an extraordinary catalog of leadership and professional development programs unlike any online training you've experienced before. Hone your conscious and authentic leadership skills with peer group, networking communities, direct engagement with life experts, and a wealth of compelling, easy to engage on demand content. Learn more at kathleenmerkel.com slash innerprofessional. Hello and welcome to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. My name is Kathleen Merkel and I'm the host of the show. And together with a wide range of legendary leaders themselves and experts in the field of self-leadership, we are going to explore concepts and ideas that show you how you can move past your fears, negative self-talk and constant doubts in order to encourage you to becoming a legendary leader yourself with far more natural impact, influence and inspiration. So are you ready for it? Well, welcome once again to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. Hello and welcome to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. I'm very happy that you have tuned in again. And obviously, I have lined up a brilliant guest for you as well. Before I'm going to introduce Kat to you, that's her name indeed, I want to ask you a couple of questions. Who of you has ever experienced loneliness? Or the sense of pure isolation where you perhaps don't have the feeling that you truly fit in and you constantly bend out of shape in order to do so. Perhaps you don't realize even anymore that you feel lonely because it became this new normal to be on your own, not to reach out to anybody, and therefore also not to experience this beautiful sense of support, of network, of community. Perhaps you haven't experienced it in the long run, right? But perhaps for a certain period of time, in particular, as we went through those years of a pandemic, that has definitely changed the sense of community for quite a few people. So today I am going to be talking to Kat Moore. And Kat actually has experienced um, chronic loneliness for over 25 years when she had the feeling that she didn't just belong, but also really struggle to connect, to approach people or to respond to being approached very openly as well. So she literally isolated herself. And even after having spoken to her, I can't imagine how it must feel for someone to experience this tremendous amount of loneliness for such a long time. And yet she isn't lonely anymore. And now she's making it her mission to help other people build connections, build community, and be a part of something bigger. Kat is an award-winning innovation fellow and the director of belonging at the University of Southern California. What a title that is, right? She is disrupting a national loneliness crisis from Gen Z to boomers with creative grassroots-driven innovations in friendship and belonging. She is also a speaker, an activist, and consultant across sectors, partnering with leaders from faith-based organizations to tech and healthcare, the military, to entertainment, to create homegrown ecosystems of belonging using her simple You Belong experiences. She graduated USC summa cum laude in philosophy with a focus on social ethics and community. But her click method stems from 25 years of chronic loneliness and community making in local LA cafes. She's going to share uh, a lot of her experiences about those experiences in Los Angeles cafes, having 10,000 or over 10,000 coffee chats with people there on a regular basis and how those experiences shaped not just her work, but her life and how she actually found support in those communities. She's all going to talk about today. She's currently working on her first book that's called You Belong, Finding Our Way Home to Each Other. And in today's episode, amongst other things, she's going to share how we can create some sort of a lifestyle of belonging and how we can truly disrupt loneliness, not just our own loneliness if we experience it, but other people's loneliness. Being far more consciously every day and present with the people around us. And I want to highlight the people we, don't, uh, we know and the people we don't know. 
But we are also going to talk about some of the elements of human connections. And we are going to reflect upon the different systems where loneliness definitely occurs. It can be the professional system, i.e. an organizational system. It can be our family system. It can be loneliness within ourselves, complete isolation that we experience within ourselves and other people might not even notice it. So I do hope that you not only enjoy this episode, that, but that you take a lot from this episode with you and help Kat shift the way we approach one another, the way we see each other and the way we listen to one another to form far more communities around us and around all the people that we meet and encounter. So enjoy the episode and I speak to you in a moment again. Oh, hello, hello, Kat. It's so wonderful to have you here. Hi, Anne. Thank you so much for having me. This is super cool. And I, I'm going to say good morning, but I know it's evening over there. It is evening, but you know what? It's it's a morning for someone who is listening today as well. So, <laughs> hello. hello. And I've just seen you have a wonderful cup um, with you, a beautiful self-made mug. It says rehuman. So what message does it give you when you drink out of that mug? Uh, I just feel like the, the last couple of years, especially, but just, you know, being a, a mom in contemporary Western civilization, at least, um, there's so many forces that are making me feel not human, <laughs> dehumanized in so many ways, stressors and whatnot, that um, rehumans an, an effort to, to collect myself and remember my own humanity and my own, my own simple ways of being that, that help me feel connected to myself and um, the environment I'm actually in and, and the people around me. I'm loving it. And you know what? I mean, we were just chatting about it um, before we hit the record button when uh, Kat asked me how I was. And I just said, you know what? It's been one of those days. My son is going through his 10th leap, I believe. And it's literally tantrums after tantrums. And Today was one of those days and I kind of felt frazzled and I needed to get myself together. But it's actually lovely to have a conversation with someone very like-minded and build this level of calm again just by chatting about it. Um, it's very powerful, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's the simplest things sometimes of just being able to express it and mm -hmm. synthesize just what happened and narrate it and have someone be able to to hold that. And, and, you know, even if they can't relate, but most people can relate to someone in their life tantruming, <laughs> whether it's a <laughs> child or an adult or a boss, uh, you know, and I mean, what a, you know, what a gift that we can so easily and so freely give each other in the flow yeah. of our real lives. So you made me very curious, right? When you said it helps me when I look at this mug and remind myself to breathe, it helps you feel human again. And you mentioned moments of motherhood that could take you out of that state. What are other moments and reasons that take you out of this feeling of being truly human? Yes, absolutely. I, I feel like they're, they're probably very similar for a lot of us, even though our lifestyles and the particular constellations of stressors are different. But I feel like just bearing the brunt of so much work, I feel like so many people I know, they're just overworked. There's too much work. And when there's too much work, you get out of balance. And I think all of our systems are, you know, have been under so much stress the last couple of years, endless adaptations, endless having to attune to think the uncertainties and having to innovate new solutions to things constantly. And then especially if you're a parent who has had to work at home and school your children from home, there's just been too many stressors on the system that when all you're doing is working and in survival mode, over time, you can get disconnected from the cycles of rest, the cycles of play, the cycles of just getting to savor simple joys that make you make your humanity feel restored. And also the ways in which that creates dynamics of scarcity mentality and suspicion of other people around you and all the different things we've been dealing with over the last couple of years, they all, they're all pulling you away from centering, slowing down, enjoying, taking care of yourself, those become luxuries 
it can feel like, and you can just get spun out. And you know what, what I noticed in this journey of the first year and nearly a half of motherhood in particular, uh, and I want to highlight here as well, it's not just for parents, um, the topic we are talking about, but for me, there is an element of loneliness. And this is one of the topics we will indeed be talking about today. Because I noticed about myself, um, I had this self-talk about you need to be strong. You need to manage all of these different things at, at once. You need to be successful. And I almost fell back into old habits of not showing a weakness. So when I had my inner tantrums, when I literally felt like I need to scream, I need to escape, I escaped to the room and just was basically hiding myself. And not opening up about what was going on made me feel really disconnected and lonely. But I only realized that when I spoke to friends of mine, for example, who had similar challenges and you just had the sense of feeling understood or just literally talking about it without feeling judged, that that connection started to build again. Yeah, absolutely. Moms and single moms in particular are the loneliest subgroup of lonely people. And that was before the pandemic even. And so just the sheer loneliness, often when you have a a younger child, especially, there's not a lot of real conversation that's happening. It's not a real reciprocal relationship. And so you're giving, 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 and you're not getting, 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 and you know, that's, that's what it's supposed to be. But if you don't have the other relationships in your life that are pouring into you as you're pouring pretty one directionally into your children, there's just so much drain on you. And it can even be hard to find the energy uh, to reach out and communicate with other moms. Um, Or maybe you just, you've moved somewhere and you don't know uh, any moms in the neighborhood, or you could be in a situation where um, play dates aren't possible for you for one reason or another. So it can be a very isolating experience, but I, I also think you're right that the, the one thing we can at least try to do is to communicate what we're experiencing to someone who's experiencing the same thing. And during COVID, the isolation was so bad for, um, I'm a single mom and for single moms in particular that I knew that I ended up forming a virtual group for us. There was seven of us. Um, We were all in Los Angeles, but we didn't meet one time in person because of COVID. But every Tuesday night we would uh, meet by Zoom or, you know, FaceTime. And we called ourselves Smash, Single Moms or Superheroes. And it was one of the most profound experiences I've ever had of bonding with people I'd never met. And we got each other through that whole year and more than just survive it. I think we all grew monumentally through the stresses of the experiences because we had each other. And it was a huge eye opener to me how if we're honest about what we need and then we're intentional about just taking one step towards creating a space that doesn't exist yet with no money, right? It costs no money to do it. There was no branding and marketing involved in gathering people started where we were as we were, and just were responding to a need that I felt that I knew other moms felt. Um, It was actually a, a very magical experience that taught me so much is possible, even if the systems around us don't change. So what did you realize for yourself? And perhaps you received some feedback from the other moms as well. How did it help you? Um, What was suddenly possible for you? Yeah, it was a huge anchor point. I think one of the things that the COVID era, and it's been happening for a while, actually, in uh, especially Western cultures, but then ratcheted up through COVID is so many of the normal structures for regular gathering. So if you think of faith-based gatherings, that happens weekly. If you think about um, sports teams, that happens generally twice a week. There's mm-hmm. There were all these built-in ways we would naturally gather and see each other. And during COVID, so many of those structures were liquefied. And so you had to either just resort to what was left, which generally was inadequate online meetings um, for work and who knows what else um, people in your own household, 
or you had to innovate a new structure, which takes a lot of energy. And I think, you know, one of the things that was most powerful to me was realizing, wow, we really take for granted so many of the the social infrastructures that we're keeping relationships alive and going that we just show up for, but someone else is organizing or a third place is keeping alive. And when all of that was taken away, it really got individually burdened to then create a new social structure. But that's what I did in order to support all of us. And it was incredible to me what a simple structure could end up holding. Every one of us was going through extraordinarily difficult things, not just single momming, but losses of loved ones, losses of jobs, confusions, abuse, like everything you can imagine. And this simple structure of a weekly time to check in and simply share what we were experiencing, be encouraged, be supported, helped each of us not just survive that period, but actually have the resources to make the best possible decisions for ourselves during a very difficult time that can often force you to make decisions out of a survival mode that aren't Mm -hmm. best for you, Mm -hmm. but that you're in a state of desperation. But when we had, you know, six other loving, strong women looking at us, even through a phone and saying, I don't like that for you. I don't like how he's talking. (laughs) I'm going to call you and you'll have me to talk to, and you don't have to call him. For example, it provided such an incredible, like distilled down sense of community and support that I didn't even know was possible online or virtually. Yeah. Wow. I'm I'm amazed by this story. I have heard something similar before by a friend who started a similar movement with pregnant women. No single woman, but just women going through pregnancy and some found it very challenging. Others were there to support because they were a bit more upbeat. But to cut a long story short, it became um, a friendship between those women and they are still going very strong. And then she said, oh, my goodness, right? We can, as you said it, duplicate that and run more of this because more people, individuals need support and want community and are craving for this. And that was before the pandemic. So as as you highlighted a few times, there, there were signs before that people are craving belonging, human connection, support, no judgment being real in those conversations. Yeah. Much, much more that I'm sure you can highlight much more eloquently than I can. No, I mean, that that's it. That that's, that's the basic human need. And until that's met adequately, nothing else in our lives really work. And, you know, not getting that need met, we're still driven to get it met, but we're often trying to get it met in ways that can never meet it. So you might be trying to get it through performance, through status, through looking a certain way, but those end up not satisfying that need because what we really need are people who know us in our fullness, flaws and all, mistakes and all, and give us space to learn and space to grow and space to be encouraged and supported in the process. And generally just achieving a certain thing in your field, for example, well, what if all of a sudden you aren't at the top, then you're aware that your belonging was really contingent upon your performance, not upon who you were as a person. And um, we're not organized as a society to value people as people. We're organized to value them as their functions or as what they can produce or what they can offer in in terms of whatever it is, bottom line, you know, all of these things that aren't about their irreplaceability as a person on the team who also happens to have certain functions that they do, but it's not drilled down far enough to, to where belonging actually intersects your identity. And until we can start to provide spaces like that for each other in the workplace, outside of the workplace, and just as we go about our lives, That craving to be seen and heard and known and accepted and valued, it doesn't go away. It just goes underground and gets toxic. And that's such an important topic that I'd love to get back to and 
talk about far more deeply. I appreciate, though, that I've already taken you in one direction to share more about your personal experience, which I value so much, without properly introducing you, because you have the most awesome job title in the world, I believe. I want to have that title. It's Director of Belonging, isn't it? Yeah, what a what a what a gift that title is. And you can have that title. You can give yourself that title. So true. I actually can. Um, yeah, I might copy it indeed. But when I read it and heard about it, I was just like, this is brilliant and it needs more directors of belonging. But you truly live it, this directorship and helping other people get out of loneliness, feel the sense of belonging. And I I am amazed by your journey that got you to that stage of making it your mission. Um, every time, and I read your bio on two different occasions on two different platforms, and I was like, how? How can you have the strength and, you know, move from A to B in such an extraordinary way? And I think I've said enough because you are the best person to share your journey actually with the audience. Oh, well, that means so much to me that you would even take the time to read it. Like, man, sharing our stories and listening to each other's stories, that's that's really the most foundational thing that we can do to get to know each other and to honor each other and create genuinely a cultural experience of making space for the fullness of who each other is, you know, and who we're becoming. But yeah, I'd be happy to, to, to share a little bit. Um, you know, I think it's so funny when you hear the word director put in front of anything. I wonder what the audience, you know, associates with that kind of title in our culture, you know, and especially when it's in an institutional setting, like I'm in uh, higher ed with that particular title. And it's funny when I describe what I actually do that kind of undermines the title itself. So when you're a director of something, people kind of assume that you do strategic things. You probably have this big team and you like roll out programs and you sort of more or less tell people what to do in a nice politically correct way. And actually what it means in my case is that I show up into spaces that are in Uh, cultural loneliness crises or disconnection crises. And I start to listen and I start to listen to what people are actually experiencing. And I ask them how I can be of support. I think that's the way that you direct this work is you put yourself in the shoes of who's actually experiencing the loneliness. And I can do that very easily because I was in those shoes for the first 25 years of my life. So I was chronically lonely from the first time I can have memory. And I tried almost every possible way to connect and ran headlong into barrier after barrier. And I hopped around to multiple schools. I had trouble connecting in my family system. I was in an isolated area of the U.S. in a very small town that was actually a radiation dump. It's the most radioactive town in America. Didn't know that. The tourism department didn't alert me to that. But like on every level, I really struggled and I didn't even know what I was experiencing. So in a lot of cases with loneliness and loneliness as a cultural phenomenon, we don't even have the language or the concept of what loneliness is, what it feels like, what it looks like, what you do about it. So it wasn't ever even talked about. And you know, I ended up dropping out of high school. I had an autoimmune condition that a lot of times different kinds of illnesses can also create a sense of loneliness and isolation from the world around you and in your peer groups. And I homeschooled myself, locked in my bedroom with library books. And so I was losing the ability to even allow people to connect to me. I was so terrified of, in my case, being rejected that often we can self-sabotage and start removing ourselves from situations that could even be potentially helpful. It was like that through my whole college career. I actually went to USC. So I was an undergrad there for four years 
and would avoid people at all costs. I had one relationship my whole college career, and that was with a professor who um, took me under his wing in the philosophy department. And he was the one person that I felt safe with. And he created this incredible dynamic of, of a mentor and mentee where I could actually start to learn about the very things like community building and what goes into the conditions for diverse community that I had absolutely no capacity to create in my real life. But I thought, well, maybe if I can study it, maybe that's one step towards it. But I graduated uh, with a degree in philosophy and my honors thesis was on conditions for community and social ethics. And yet I had not one friend. And so we can have a lot of strategic understanding of things, how systems work, how people work, a lot of theories from psychology and social sciences. But until it's actually something that's in our bodies and in our reactions and uh, experienced in the flow of our real lives, all of that is pretty much inert or useless. So it wasn't for me until I was 28 and pregnant and sitting in the same coffee shop in Los Angeles day in and day out, that that all that head knowledge and all of that experience of how not to connect, how, how it doesn't work, um, <laughs> actually started to come to fruition in my real life. And it was this simultaneous connection from within with uh, my child tied to another human being by a cord, watching my own physical body, psychology, make space for another person and be able to hold them and attend to them, that I realized not only my capacity to connect that we all have, that's an inborn capacity to connect, but also my capacity to create a sense of belonging for someone else yeah. was innate. And then that ended up being mirrored in my external environment where day after day of being in, habitually in the same place, starting to see the same people acclimate to the environment, people started breaking the ice with me. And babies are a universal conversation bridge. And so I started very slowly over time to realize I can talk to people. I don't have to run away and pretend I have to go to the restroom. These people aren't necessarily going to hurt me. And I would leave the seat across from me open at the table and people from every possible walk of life, most of whom, you know, you would never look at and be like, I bet they struggle. I bet they're experiencing a high degree of loneliness and um, just don't look like it. But what I discovered is that everyone is in desperate need of places and people where they can show up and not have it all together and simply have whatever they're experiencing in their life in that moment witnessed and supported. So all I was doing was listening to people for three minutes before they went about their business after their coffee brewed. And people were sitting down and break, like, crying. Their whole life stories would pour out. Um, things they didn't even know they were upset about would surface. And the one thing that they each said getting up from the table was, thank you for listening. Not thank you for solving all my problems. Thank you for your advice. Thank you for validating my career. Like none of that. Thank you for listening. And it's like, oh my gosh, we are not listening mm. to each other. Mm. For even three minutes, we're not listening to each other. And if we don't feel heard, that we have no possible way of really moving forward in our lives, in integrity, and in purpose. So my whole life really radically changed through this experience in the coffee shops. And all of a sudden, I felt like Dorothy. I think we talked about <laughs> yeah. that on call. I felt like Dorothy moving from this world of black and white into this magical universe of color and sound and just could not get enough of listening to people, learning about their stories and who they were. And my whole life was expanding through making space for them. And it was through that, that I discovered my calling. And I'm like, you know, if we don't get this right, if we don't learn how to show up for each other in these super simple ways, nothing else in life is going to come out straight. It's just impossible. There's no bedrock for us. We don't feel like we have anywhere to stand um, and anyone who's got our back um, if they really knew us. And so people who were CFOs earning half a million dollars a year 
we're coming in in the same emotional uh, state. And often I, I realized the more successful you are, the harder it is to admit where you really might have um, needs to be supported um, and that your relationships might not be all of that, uh, all that great, all of that rich, um, but it was everyone. And it, it's, a, it's a universal need and also something that we can so simply decide to offer for each other. I actually started an experiment with a few of my mentees who um, started working with me and saying, well, I can't always find a solution and I, I don't know how to find a solution and to give my team the solution. I said, let's experiment with that and simply spend time listening, truly, truly listening to those individuals. Until we got to the stage where they realized, oh, it's not about finding the solution for anybody. It's about being actually there and listening and actively fully listening, just not for what we might want to hear. Yeah. And to leave distractions to the side and be. And it's powerful. It is really, really powerful. And it has a positive impact on all parties involved. Absolutely. It's, it's bi-directional. So even if we think we're the listener, we're being shaped in that dynamic that we're setting up. And um, more often than not, what, what happens is that it might not be the first time you intentionally make space to listen to someone, but it eventually will happen that it, it's a dynamic you're initiating. And so it will boomerang. So once someone has shared and, and been heard, what's most natural is for them to say, well, well, tell me how you're doing, Kathleen. So then you get set up with more mutuality in the, in the dynamic. And just by listening and, and starting to share some of the things that are on our hearts, on our minds, whether in the workplace or whether it has to do with things outside of the workplace, there's so much brain science now that shows us that, that um, your actual brain waves start to couple with the person that you're listening and, and sharing with. And that coupling is what makes you feel like there's a resonance, there's safety being built. Someone's really understanding me. I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. This is okay. I'm okay. Mm -hmm. But if you don't create spaces where, where your brains can sync like that, it's really hard to have the kind of trust built and confidence built that enables teams of people, if we're talking about workplaces, to really decide to go the extra mile to enact the mission of the company or to you know, make sure the project gets completed with excellence or whatever it is, that human layer and dynamic has to be built first. And listening is one of the most... Um, deep uh, and complex skill sets that we engage uh, our whole lives because we're listening in three directions. We're listening to the person in front of us and that's already complex, but simultaneously we're learning to listen to what's going on inside of us as we listen to them. Am I jumping to want to solve their problem? Is this triggering something in me? Am I thinking about my own to-do list? Right. And then we're also thinking about the shared context that we're in, the norms. Is, is this being recorded on and on? I'm up for promotion. How is this interaction going to affect that? So all the things, that's three dimensions all at once, but it's the most rewarding, I think, uh, skill set and really lifestyle that opens us up to the fullest range of experience possible. Yeah. And, and you've given this beautiful example, right? It takes three minutes. So if anybody um, says, I don't have the time for this, I'm constantly too busy, I'm distracted. Three minutes. You, you shared quite a bit in a short period of time where I was like, okay, I want to know more about that and about that and about that. Um, let's start with the, the pregnancy, actually, because you spend all this time lonely not connecting to anybody else but your philosophy prof uh, professor at this time. You even lived, I read, in a house share for 10 months and nine of those months you didn't have any connections with the other housemates. Have I understood that correctly? That's right. 
I I got to win some kind of award for that. I wow. and and this these were such incredibly loving people. They were all nonprofit workers. And so it was this ideal context to develop relationships in and I just was so scared. And it took me 9 months of watching them and trying to understand if I had a place and what my place could be, how much of myself could show up, which parts of myself could show up before I had the courage to even start engaging. So how, how did you build that courage? You know, I think one of the things that I'm most passionate about is, is helping us realize how much we don't know about each other and how much we don't know about ourselves. And I had just been through so many difficult social experiences that for me, the on-ramp into relationship was very, very long. I needed a lot of evidence that people were good people, that people meant what they said, that people were going to keep inviting me, that I was really wanted and they weren't just saying it. So it really just took nine months of me observing, are these people legit? Is this place legit? before I was like, okay, I, I can try because enough safety has been built for me. And I, kn I know we talk about safe spaces, but it, it's a very complex thing. What makes any given individual feel safe? Mm -hmm. We don't know what the traumas are that people have been through, what their past experiences in workplaces have been, yeah. how they feel with their particular cultural background in a, in a new particular space. There's so many different factors so being sensitive to where people's entry point is, knowing that they're coming with a whole life of experiences, no one's coming fresh into a workplace. Um, and so I don't, I guess maybe it was courage, but I feel like more what I, what it was, was um, needing a long set of evidence of what this place really was. And it took nine months for that place and those people to prove it to me and, um, I recognize that most people don't need that much evidence, but for me at that point, that's what I needed. And it takes over nine months to grow a little one in your tummy. And that happened for you. And you said that was for you, the turning point where, you know, you help someone else to belong. You connect very deeply and physically with someone else too. And I don't know if you can explain that, but I'm trying to understand what happens in that moment when you go from loneliness to having this utter sense of connection, how you actually realize that that was there and suddenly this shift had happened for you. Is there any way that you can describe it? Well, we can all try. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. um, I think one of the things I've been thinking about lately is how you know, humans are meaning-making creatures. We, we have to form stories and make meaning in order to have a horizon of action to, to move forward with. And I think that in the course of my life, I had somehow made meaning of the experiences that I was having that were so painful by internalizing negative beliefs about myself. This must have been my experience because there's something wrong with me. I'm not good enough. I have to be perfect in order to get my needs met. All kinds of ways that we make meaning as children and young adults that we're not even super metacognitive that we're doing. We're just doing it in order to survive. Those things get very, very deeply embedded in our psyches and in our bodies and in how we understand life. And I had people who were telling me good things about myself, but I think the negative internalizing of, of these stories of why I had experienced so much loneliness were so deep that even when people were giving me positive feedback about myself, it couldn't really penetrate. And I think it took an actual bodily experience to override those negative narratives Because no matter how many negative things you've thought about, well, I guess I'm just a weirdo. I guess I can't connect. I guess I'm just always going to be on the outside looking in. Okay, I'll just become a loner. I'll just own it. When you then watch your own body make space for another person and nurture them, 
and feel all of your emotions shift towards caring and being willing to, in a second, step in front of a train for that baby. And your thoughts start to involve another person's needs more than they involve your own, right? I stopped drinking wine when I was pregnant. I stopped drinking caffeine because I knew that I, that I was not just an I, I was a we. And so when you have that kind of profound overhaul of your own body, psychology, and emotions, that I think was the new experience that overrode the the tape of negative thoughts and gave me some space to question, maybe there wasn't something wrong with me. Maybe I just didn't have the tools. Maybe I was in an area of the country that no one had had those tools. Maybe my parents also had no friends, so they couldn't model for me what I needed. All of these things started helping me question those negative narratives that I had internalized. That's so much work, self-work. It's so much work. (laughs) It's, It's incredible what the human being is capable of doing and changing. I find it encouraging. Because we may get stuck in a rut where you say there's no way we can change certain circumstances ourselves um, and so on. However, there is a way. There is something we can do. It may be really hard. It may take a while. But there's always something we can do. And and that's one thing I'm taking from your message. Yes, that's what I'm almost more than anything. That's what I'm, I'm passionate about trying to communicate is that we are working with our natures when we say yes to a lifestyle of connecting and belonging. Um, and so life always wants to find a way, right, to grow and thrive and share. So we're working with all of the good stuff that's already hardwired into nature um, and into life beyond all of the systems we've created that thwart it. <laughs> We're actually like going backwards in time almost and trying to remember and reconnect to the more, the deeper things and the more natural things. And love will always find a way. And love will always be constructive. It will be creative. It will be organic. It will be sensitive to the actual people involved. And what's so crazy to me is that all of life is really stitched together in non-visible particles, like so tiny that the human eye can't even perceive them. That's how all of life grows and continues to grow. And it is always in those tiny spaces, tiny moments, tiny interactions that life will either open up or shrink back. And throughout our lives, we're actually always trying to get back to that dynamic with our caretaker, whether it was our mom or our dad or someone else in the 18 inches of space between a baby's face and their caretakers. So it's nine inches and nine inches. And that loop is where our entire sense of selfhood is formed. Scientists have measured the amount of joy that is compounded and exchanged between the caretaker's eyes and the baby's in one second. And it's thousands of times that that is going back and forth between their eyes. I'm here. I love you. I care. You don't have to do anything. This is where you belong. (laughs) And that's, that's what we're always trying to recreate in every relationship that we're in. And so when you think of that space is, is a sacred amount of space and how we show up for each other or not without even saying anything is what will in your bones reassure you, I have standing here, Mm. I'm wanted here. Mm. And so it really is the simplest things, but we have to ask ourselves, am I doing them? Yeah. So how can people as to whether they are in organizational systems or outside of them, create that lifestyle of belonging again? Yeah. I mean, that's the million dollar question, right? My sense is that once you have the experience of both being on the receiving end of someone messaging care to you in this way, and you have the experience of being able to offer it and see instantly the impact that that has on someone, it actually doesn't take that much convincing and that much strategizing because it's, it's like you've given someone water in the desert 
And once you've tasted what it feels like to drink, you kind of don't need to keep convincing people to do it. And really, I think, yes, there are things that if you're in high levels of leadership, um, you can be thinking systemically about how to create the more spaces for this, how to reward this, how to train for this within all the interactions within a system. But even if you're not in, in a position to change policies and systems directly, everyone's already participating in various kinds of systems. And we can keep asking ourselves, how can I humanize this moment, this interaction everywhere we are? How can I rehuman this situation <laughs> to go back to my mug? <laughs> yes, um, exactly. You know, and it is, it, it's much more of a, um, of a posture towards life and of an awareness um, of how we choose to show up for each other. And that's something that you, that does just get increasingly embodied such that it doesn't, ha- it becomes reflexive over time, like any kind of habit you form. We have a certain set of habits we all have right now. Are they serving the ends of connection or no? And so we can start to form micro habits of asking the barista their name, for example, paying attention to the dog who comes up to us on the walk and actually giving that dog space to tell us something, you know, that maybe we didn't know we even needed to learn about connecting with strangers, about messaging love, who knows what it is, but there are habits that we can form that then replace habits of disconnection. And then that way, slowly over time, you're shoring up your skills, sure, but just your way of being in the world. And it becomes habitual and it becomes easy to be open. It's to the point now for me, for example, because I've just been doing this for so long now that it bothers me when I'm in a public place and I see someone who doesn't have anyone to talk to. It bothers me. And I have to go do something about it to make sure that they're, they actually want to be alone or whatever. And so we can absolutely transform how we're in the world and it become uh, habitual to do so. So, so what do you do in those moments? Um, I, I was just trying to put myself into that situation, right? That was my second listening level of listening to what's going on for me. And I picture myself seeing someone sitting there on their own. And I my tendency would be to think, well, they might want to be on their own and just enjoy some me time. Mm-hmm. So how do you approach those individuals just to check they are okay? Yeah. And, you know, everyone, this is, might be a different answer for everyone, right? Mm. Depending on who they are, the situation they're in, whether they feel safe in that space to approach someone, all of that. But for me now, I, I kind of know, know too much sometimes because I've had to, had to learn different kinds of research findings that are out there for the purposes of my work. And I know about this phenomenon called the likability gap where researchers have found that our default is to assume that strangers don't want us to approach them and talk to them. But what they found when they ask those people is that they almost universally do want to be approached. And so we've learned very sophisticated ways of messaging, don't talk to me, putting in our earbuds, being on our phone, but often those are misdirects. And so I think because I know most people do want to at least have their existence acknowledged, not everyone wants to have a five-hour conversation about their soul. Fine. That's not the goal. The goal for me is to make sure that I'm doing my part as a form of social responsibility, but honestly, just out of empathy, because I know how shitty it feels, pardon my French, to not ever be approached. Hmm. And the power of initiating a basic sense of, I see you and I care about your existence. There is not very many people on earth who don't want that level of care. Even if they have the right to then say, you know what, thank you so much, but I'm preparing for a massive presentation in five minutes and I really can't talk, but this means so much to me that you even came over and saw me. And and you started to talk about the coffee conversations early on. I'm jumping back now in past into the past um, period again. 10,000 coffee conversations I've read. That's a lot. 
So I'm picturing you as the pregnant woman, probably drinking a decaf in a coffee, a coffee shop. And out of the first conversation, you know, a second conversation has gone to come and the third and so on and so forth. So how, how did that happen that you sat there and suddenly, you know, you're having daily conversations in the coffee shop with so many people? Yeah, you know, it it is. It's one of these phenomenon that's almost like, um, you know, there's a kind of blackberry bush that um, uh, seeds got taken to the Pacific Northwest in the U.S. And it's it's a giant job for farmers to have to contain this thing because left to its own devices, it takes over everything. Oh. It'll climb your whole wall. It'll climb over every other plant you own. It, it's just mm-hmm. like this. And that's what I think real culture change is like. It's not this grueling process of it should be taking on a life of its own. And so what happens is when you're working with people's social natures and needs, it takes very little to actually provide the necessary conditions for that kind of radical growth to happen. And so really it was about consistency, about being there often. That's actually very important. And coffee shops in particular are third spaces that are neutral. They're not affiliated with a religion, a a set of politics. The price point isn't so high that it is inaccessible to people with uh, across the income spectrum. Um, it's not associated with any particular cultural backgrounds. So it's a very open space and it's also a power neutral space. So all the patrons are on level ground, Mm. right? There's no hierarchies involved with Mm. it. So all of those things, and then the essential ingredient really is you can have all those things in place, but if you don't have a catalyst, nothing's gonna happen in your coffee shop. It is not gonna be a community making hub that spills out of the cafe into the lives of the people in the neighborhood and transforms the neighborhood. That's not gonna happen unless you have at least one catalyst who is embodying these principles, who's, who has a face and who has arms and who you know, creates the space out of who they are. So that's also you know, the main thing that was going on um, is that it was being embodied. So it was being embodied, you don't, didn't have any power struggles or hierarchies, and you showed up consistently. Yeah, That's- and there was no agenda, right? There's no agenda. I wasn't trying to sell someone something. I wasn't trying to convince people to change their minds about things. And that's what we're all braced for, is someone's going to have crap to say about how I'm living, what I believe, what I should or shouldn't do. Or they're going to try to sell me something. I would go around with my son once he was two or three years old. We would make cupcakes at home and he would go push his little wagon through the store and hand out cupcakes to people. Most of the time, people were just in tears with a simple act of, you know, hospitality or generosity coming from a little one. But there were a couple of people that were like, what's the catch? Oh, you know, we're they're yeah. very braced to be used and for relationships to come around to really having an agenda behind them. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think when you can approach, you know, uh, people in any sphere for their sake, it's, it's a act of resistance and it, and it profoundly affects people because it's so rare. I think it hits a lot of people by surprise that turns into a very positive surprise and helps them reflect upon how they show up as you said beforehand right it's an organic way of changing cultures seeing an act of kindness like this without the agenda does something with me in that moment it makes me clearly think absolutely and you know when you see all of these uh, there's so many good news movements now that are you know really trying to spotlight acts of kindness and acts mm. of basic humanity and decency and <laughs> And things like this, but it, it is, it's, it's whether or not you were even the direct participant in an, in a positive exchange in a public place, just witnessing other people treat each other in those ways yeah. immediately starts to message to you. This is the kind of space. These are the kinds of people. This is the kind of neighborhood where people watch out for each other. 
people are generous for no reason. It's such a simplistic framework that you can apply literally anywhere. Right? I, yes. I, I love simplicity, I have to say. So that really rocks my boat when I hear about it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it should be simple. It really, really should be simple. And when it starts getting overly complicated, I think we need to take a, take a pause. And because often it means that we're trying to avoid doing the simple things because the simple things are the ones that actually get their hooks into us and ask us to consider how we're showing up and how we may need to change to align with, you know, our values for meaningful relationships and, and the larger world that we're interested in creating. I do, however, believe, and I actually noticed it in some of my friends and also some, some clients of mine, that there is this element of, if it doesn't feel hard, have I done enough? Am I enough? Have I put enough effort into something? It's got to feel hard, right? It's a new mindset shift. Backwards, probably again, to say it can be easy, it can be simplistic, and it's probably going to be more powerful and organic and intuitively happening. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, that that's just a, um, often a, an effect of living so immersed in systems that are grueling and that are inhuman, is that they create a false narrative for us. It's a hustle and grind culture. And we equate that with success, but really it's a very unbalanced version of thriving um, because it's not taking into account your own well-being, the kinds of dynamics and workplaces that are created, the kind of social fabric that's created out of that kind of pushing ourselves to the breaking point. It's not healthy. And so I think until we have though, um, a different vision for how it could be, we can think that that's the only way that there is. And so I think the more that we can create conversations around, okay, but I tried it this way and this is what I experienced. And it didn't prevent me from also having an income and supporting my family and, you know, having things that I want and need. They're not mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. It's not like you either have to choose to show up for people and yourself and in these kinds of ways and have no career or, you know, have a career, but like have no humanity left, yeah. right? It's always, how do we integrate it? And I think that um, there's just so much research and evidence that the more we humanize our workplaces and systems, actually the better equipped they are to uh, achieve their missions. We just don't have those processes in place. And then we can torture ourselves with, well, you know, I need to be doing more. This should be harder. I must need to create a program. I'm very anti-programs. Um, I, I think we really have to just strip back a lot of the barriers that have formed to each other and to just being honest and real with what we're experiencing and what we need and go back to a, almost a, a younger state of being where we didn't have so many kinds of armor that we've created um, to protect ourselves um, from each other. And when you can drop down into a more simplistic way of being, it really frees up a lot of energy, a lot of creativity, a lot of possibilities, and reduces a lot of the things like how much are we spending on employee burnout and on well-being resources? We shouldn't need that many in the first place if we weren't torturing people in the systems. Um, so it actually has benefits to people's bottom line, to their team building, to, to their uh, client retention, if you just do it right to begin with. To their growth. I mean, you could go on and on speaking about safety. And I took your point on board that the feeling of safety is individual because people have different requirements to feel safe, 100%. However, if I treat someone like another human being, and I built thorough human connections, I believe you definitely build more safety than not doing that. And safety creates more openness. So you help your company grow perhaps quicker because you get more input, more feedback, more criticism as well to change more quickly. 
there are all sorts of advantages to it. Apart from the, the main fact for me is the sense of well-being, going to work and feeling connected and enjoying this, this time there with all the ups and downs that you have in any system in your life. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the easiest ways to, you know, think about how do you approach creating safe space? I mean, there's a lot of literature out there that can give you, you know, g- great tips. But for me, the strategy is always to assume I don't know the answer to that until I am face to face with the actual people in, in, in question. And until I involve them in telling me, telling the group, telling themselves what they actually need and co-creating that for, you know, as a group, it has to emerge. In my opinion, you don't just walk into a space like Moses and say, I now declare this space is safe. Here are norms, right? Those have to come out of people. And that's a much easier approach, actually, because then you're not trying to endlessly account for every possible set of experiences that people could have. There, it's actually, there's no way to do it from a top-down perspective. You have to create space for that to emerge and for the group to own the ongoing stewardship of those boundaries. How are we going to resolve conflict? Because guess what? The closer we get, we're go- we should anticipate conflict right? That's actually a signal that things are getting deeper, but there's, there's crazy, you know, research about this since COVID 65% of employees feel less connected in their workplace. Lonely workers are costing uh, industries $406 billion per year in all kinds of services and attrition. Close relationships in the workplace account for 77% of job satisfaction. And 77. Yes. And the the final stat that I'll burden you with is that (laughs) there's only a 1% chance of feeling fulfilled in your life if you have no meaningful relationships at work. So it's, it's, it is a, it is an issue for, you know, if you're a leader in a workplace, but this is also just an issue for every person who has a job. Like we've got to figure it out how to do it incrementally for ourselves if we don't have the co- cooperation of our systems and leaders yeah. and as leaders how do we do this effectively and get out of just programmatizing everything but how do we actually humanize the systems that we already have and turn every interaction into a space that feels human i want to say these are the beautiful final words um i want to add some statistic I can't remember anymore where it came from, but approximately 65% of people in the workplace bent out of shape in order to fit in because they have experienced some sort of loneliness, some sort of lack of belonging. They want to belong so badly that some of them will go to extremes to pretend to be someone they are not. Some of them will do it very mildly, i.e., watching some sport um, when they're actually not really into sports, but so that they can have a chat about the last baseball game, for example. There are always ways that people seek a sense of belonging. And it's, it's important that we find out who not just the people are, but what they are about, what really matters to them, and just to, as you said, make them feel heard. I want to leave this conversation on extremely positive level and this whole conversation was just intriguing insightful reflective and encouraging so thank you for this i'd love to share with the listeners what's next for you on your a beautiful mission what are you working on what's coming what can we be truly excited about oh that's so kind um well so many different things i think um the more work I do, the more I realize there is to do. And uh, it it truly feels like a frontier, which is both exciting and um, also extraordinarily demanding. A couple of the things I'm most excited about is that, you know, I've had the joy of being able to go back to my alma mater and see what kind of difference I can make for people who um, I don't want to experience the loneliness that I felt when I was there as an undergrad. But one of the things that's really become heavy on my heart is 
that this this kind of access to experiences of belonging to conversations about our social experience that to me it's a human right that we all have access to these kinds of conversations these kinds of resources these kinds of tools and i want to be able to create content that is universally accessible not just to people who are at usc or not just to people who are in an organization that i'm supporting um, and so i'm i'm working on launching my own public content so that more people can be helped more quickly um, and i'm hoping that it's accessible both to people who are experiencing loneliness and to um, people who are caring for people who are and so I'm really excited about that. They're, they're just going to be video content and probably a podcast around all of these things that just take a deeply human and practical approach to what we're really experiencing to, to steward the conversation more broadly for people. So I'm excited about that. And I'm also excited that, that I'm apparently going to be a par uh, partnering with another university in the Northeast that's a school for engineers. And that's a, a very different group of students that I'm uh, that I've been working with, but um, engineers have a very interesting. They see a problem and they want to solve it, and so taking this as a problem to be solved, I think, is going to be a very interesting approach that I hope can be transferable to lots of other kinds of systems. Can't wait to hear on your podcast about it or to read about it. Thank you so much for sharing those adventures with us. And, and where can we find out more about you? Where should people look? I have a very um, light social media presence, but I am on LinkedIn. Um, but primarily, uh, if you go to my website, it's cat-more.com. That's where I try to, um, people can subscribe to, to my tiny letter newsletter, get in touch with me if they're interested in partnering or consulting or, or media and see uh, my upcoming schedule. But I would also just love to hear what other people are doing and learning and excited about because really it is a frontier and the field is emerging. And the more that we can learn with each other, the further the work will get and more quickly. So um, I'm going to take this point to say, do share with us And with Kat in particular, if you have any ideas, any input you want to share, any feedback on this show today as well, perhaps you want to share some of your experience with us too. Every contribution is welcomed. So get in touch. Obviously, we're going to post a link in uh, the show notes as well so that it's very easy for you to connect. For now, I want to say thank you so much for your generosity of time, information, sharing and um, connectivity. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Kat. Um, take good care of yourself and I'm looking forward to hear more from you. Thank you so much for having me. What a joy. Bye-bye, everybody, and take good care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Legendary Leaders podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then remember to subscribe to the show either on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or on my website, www.kathleenmerkel.com. I would also love to hear from you to discover what topics you'd like to hear more about, what topics really resonated with you, and how you're enjoying the show in general. Please do leave your review on iTunes as well. It would mean the world to me. Thank you so much and speak to you again next time. Bye.